Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter six, The Trouble with E.L. Cord, part two. The pilots of Century Airlines wanted to bargain with the airline's owner, E.L. Cord. They had hoped to come to an agreement that would benefit Cord while mitigating considerable hardship and what the pilots deemed starvation wages. Cord agreed to a 10-day delay in instituting new salaries. However, he had no intention of backing down. When the pilots refused to accept the lower wages, all 23 Century pilots were fired on the spot. When the unusual spectacle of a strike by airline pilots hit the newspapers, ALPA's connection with the American Federation of Labor began to pay off. AFL President William Green publicly blasted Cord, citing substandard wages in his various manufacturing enterprises, and ordered the Illinois State Federation of Labor into action on ALPA's behalf. Victor Olander, Secretary of the State Federation, promptly went to work with David Banke to devise a publicity campaign, set up a strike fund, and map out a strategy. He secured free time on a Chicago radio station controlled by organized labor, where Banky and several century strikers told their story and even took listeners on imaginary flights. The broadcasts were very good, surprising even the station's staff with their descriptions of flights through thunderstorms, landings against crosswinds, and other technically accurate accounts of flying. The popular nightly broadcasts generated a surge of public support for the century strikers. But they didn't pay the grocery bills. Banky assessed every ALPA member $25 a month, raising nearly $5,000 the first month to distribute among the strikers. They used part of the money to rent an airplane that strikers took turns flying alongside every century plane arriving in Chicago a unique attempt to persuade passengers to boycott the airline through the use of aerial picketing. Within a week, however, Cord had managed to resume daylight flights, as unemployed pilots quickly responded to his advertisements. However, before Century could resume its night schedules, the new pilots would have to night qualify, which involved making five landings at each airport along the route. The Department of Commerce agreed to send a special team of flight examiners to check out Cord's new hires. And, even worse, the Army and Navy released a number of qualified military pilots from active duty, specifically so that they could go work for Cord. Banky then tried a new tactic. He sent squads of Century Strikers to politely persuade the strikebreakers to come to ALPA's new headquarters at the Troy Lane Hotel where Banky would explain the issues. Banky promised to use ALPA's influence to find jobs for any of the strikebreakers who joined the union. Banky's attempt to contact his pilots directly worried Cord, forcing him into his first mistake. In an attempt to insulate his new hires from contact with the strikers, Cord forced them to live in a guarded dormitory, take their meals together, and ride to and from the airport on a bus with an armed guard and station guards to keep the strikers off the airfield. 
Spanky checked the Chicago City ordinances and found that there was no justification for this action because the airfield was public property. The newspapers began to question Cord's heavy-handed actions. This then led the Chicago City Council, which was friendly with organized labor, to get involved as well. The City Council invited Cord to appear before one of its sessions to explain himself. Cord ignored them. After this, Alpa's fortunes began to improve, most likely due to the fact that elected officials dislike being snubbed. News of the century squabble did Cord no good in Washington, where his proposal to carry airmail at half the prevailing rate was under serious consideration. The AFL marshaled support among pro-labor lawmakers, urging them to resist Cord's proposal unless he settled with the striking pilots. Representative Ferrello LaGuardia emerged as the chief anti-Cord spokesman, largely because he and Banky were personal friends. The century strike was hardly a burning issue in Washington. After all, it was a small strike on a small airline affecting only a few people. LaGuardia made several speeches on the House floor without attracting much attention, arguing that piloting required the highest degree of skill. LaGuardia asked his fellow lawmakers how the traveling public would ever get trustworthy pilots for less than a union truck driver gets in the city of New York. LaGuardia's speeches worried Cord and forced his second great mistake. He persuaded a congressman from Indiana, where the largest cord manufacturing enterprises were located, to attack ALPA. Cord feared LaGuardia and Banky might drum up enough support to deny him an airmail contract. It was one thing to ignore Chicago aldermen who had no mail contracts to bestow, but it was quite another to ignore a congressman. So Cord sent Representative William Wood onto the floor of Congress to answer LaGuardia and declare that ALPA was not only associated with the criminal elements of Chicago, but was also a communist organization. This action enraged LaGuardia. Whatever Dave Banky was, he certainly was not a racketeer. And since most airline pilots were military trained, many still holding reserve commissions, it stood to reason that they were not communists either. This assault on war veterans, especially in view of Cord's own conspicuous lack of service, brought several congressmen down on him, including Representative William Larson of Georgia, who accused Cord of being a notorious exploiter of labor whose airline did not have satisfactory men to man the ships. Representative Melvin Moss of Minnesota, who called himself the Flying Congressman, urged the secretaries of the Army and Navy to deny leaves of absence to military pilots who planned to work for Cord. Things were snowballing against him, and he was seriously worried. On February 29, 1932, Cord sent every member of Congress a printed statement of his position in the dispute, entitled, A Patriotic Interview with E.L. Cord. He declared flatly that most pilots were opposed to unionization, asked for federal protection of his planes and pilots, and said that ALPA was infiltrated by Reds engaging in anarchistic activities. LaGuardia was furious. Taking the House floor the day after Cord's statement was circulated, LaGuardia described him as low, dishonest, a liar, 
and a gangster. In the course of his speech, LaGuardia introduced a committee of century strikers who were present in the House Gallery led by Duke Sconing and Red Williams. LaGuardia pointed out that over half of the locked-out pilots were former servicemen who served as flyers in the U.S. Army during the World War and insisted that Cord's planes were unsafe, his mechanics poorly paid, and his replacement pilots unqualified. LaGuardia sat down to an ovation from his fellow congressmen, and Cord's hopes for an airmail contract died in the applause. Shortly after LaGuardia's remarks, one of Cord's airplanes crashed in St. Louis while practicing night landings, killing several pilot trainees. The crash seemed to confirm that Cord's equipment was unsafe. It also accomplished what aerial picketing had been unable to do, discourage business. Boardings dropped so drastically that Cord began hauling his own clerical employees around in an effort to persuade people that there were still plenty of passengers. However, no one was fooled. By April 1932, Cord closed Century Airlines for good. But beforehand, Cord saw that his luck was running out, so he cashed in all of his airline operations, selling Century Pacific to American Airways. Cord gave up his aircraft, equipment, and personnel in exchange for 140,000 shares of stock in Aviation Corporation the parent company of American. Within a year, Court had parlayed this block of stock into effective control of AVCO and hence American. He dared not take personal control of the airline, however, for he had far too many enemies in Congress. In order to not endanger American's airmail contract, Cord placed another of his lieutenants, C.R. Smith, in charge of operations but Cord remained the force behind the scenes. ALP proved that it could effectively arouse public and congressional support during the century strike. But in some respects, the outcome was not altogether satisfactory. Neither the Chicago strikers nor the strike breakers were included in the merger with American, since Cord had closed down Century and released all the pilots prior to the merger. Only Century Pacific's pilots automatically gained new jobs. Banky worked hard to find jobs for Alpa Century stalwarts, placing all of them by 1936, despite the tight job market. The luckless strikebreakers were in deep trouble, however, because Banky saw to it that their names were published in boldface type in every issue of Airline Pilot magazine. Although Alpa could not prevent an airline from hiring a Century Strikebreaker, everybody knew their names, and no Alpa member, which by the late 1930s included nearly every pilot, would work with them. Banky eventually relented and allowed a few of them to join Alpa, but not until all the Century pilots had been placed, and only then to prove Alpa was capable of forgiveness. Through a combination of clever public relations and support in Congress, Banky managed to turn the century strike into a victory for ALPA, emerging from it as a labor leader of national reputation. Postmaster General Walter Brown, the effective overlord of the airlines because of his control of airmail contracts, flew with Banky from Chicago to Washington shortly after the strike, 
and declared that Banky was a very good fellow and a splendid pilot, leading the fine type of men he was willing to trust his life to. Brown readily agreed when Representative James Meade, the powerful chairman of the House Post Office Committee, urged him to withhold mail contracts from any airline that did not respect the privilege of collective representation to its pilots. This kind of support offered enormous opportunity for Banky to pursue his goals in Washington, where he lobbied effectively throughout the 1930s to gain protective federal legislation for his pilots. The Century Strike turned out to be the catalyst because when the Century pilots struck, they thought Cord would have to come to terms and would be unable to replace them. After Cord showed what he could do to them, the pilots came to realize that they would need friends. That friend was the AFL. Without its support, it's unlikely that Banky and Alpa would have been able to sustain themselves during the strike. Banky recognized that if Alpa had gone to Washington as a weak, unaffiliated organization, no one would have listened. Most pilots realized that Banky was right, and they could not depend upon their skills alone to protect their livelihoods. After the century lockout, most pilots came to accept unionization as a necessity. There was fear that Cord might be angry enough to try to settle the score in the future, and measures were taken to reinforce the association's presence in Washington. And what of the major players in this long-forgotten affair? E.L. Cord lived for many years in seclusion in Reno, Nevada, before dying at the age of 80 in 1974. On the other hand, in 1953, Dave Banky died of a heart attack at age 53, the result of being a workaholic. This tendency began during the intense battle with Cord, and it would continue, as Banky was driven to see to it that Alpa would survive. It's no exaggeration to say that he was the only pilot in America with the skills and contacts to complete the job successfully. There would be no rest for Dave Banky. Events were moving rapidly in Washington, and Alpa would have to move with them or perish. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter six of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2019. All rights reserved.